Turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, where we will be, Lord willing, focused for the next four consecutive weeks together, considering this tremendous, tremendous book. Well, the American poet and author, William Sidney Porter, better known by his pen name, O. Henry, published a variety of widely circulated short stories in his life, many of which are still read and beloved to this day. Some of you might know one of his better works, The Gift of the Magi. Well, a different one of his short stories describes the deep affection between two dear friends who vow to meet one another at the same New York City restaurant 20 years from the moment they said goodbye. The story dramatically depicts a New York City police officer walking his beat, making sure all is safe on the streets that night. He encounters a fellow named Bob on the stoop of an abandoned restaurant who claims that he is waiting for his friend Jimmy, who he hasn't seen in two decades. They exchange a warm conversation, and Bob assures the officer that his dear friend is of such character that he would never, ever forget that meeting. And he'd wait as long as he needed to for Jimmy to show up. Well, the officer asks a number of questions before bidding the man good night and appears to be on his way. A few moments later, Jimmy arrives and meets Bob with all the expected joy and delight that you'd expect. They walk arm in arm, something more common 100 years ago, down the road telling stories until the streetlights illumine Jimmy's face, to which Bob then erupts, and he exclaims, wait a second, you're not Jimmy Wells. 20 years is a long time, but not long enough to change the shape of a man's nose. Well, the man posing as Jimmy admits to the ruse, and he informs Bob that he's been under the arrest for the last 10 minutes, but not before handing Bob a note from the real Jimmy Wells, which simply states, Bob, I was at the place on time. I saw the face of a man wanted by Chicago cops. I didn't want to arrest you myself, so I went and got another cop and sent him to do the job. Jimmy. That's how the story ends. The story ends abruptly. Stories as short as it is surprising, hence O. Henry's nickname the father of the surprise ending. And after you make your first pass through O. Henry's After 20 Years, his short story, that a surprising effect is never quite the same, right? But once you know the end, the way you read the beginning is never the same either. For you begin to pick up then on all the nuance and the foreshadowing and the detail that you missed the first time. Well, similar to Bob's character in O. Henry's After 20 Years, the prophet Jonah is also a man on the run, but not as someone running from the law. Worse, someone running from God himself. The book of Jonah ends abruptly, and it it is as surprising as perhaps any other book in your Bible. But in the end, this hard-hearted prophet is intended to provoke within us the question of whether or not we will learn 
from Jonah, or we will become Jonah. As one Hebrew scholar writes, he says this about the book, the book of Jonah is not about Jonah, ultimately speaking. This will become crystal clear by the end of the story. The story is about us as God's people. It is about our attitudes and our actions. Through telling us the story of Jonah, the author invites us to examine our own lives and to see the extent to which there is any Jonah in us. I don't read this as, as him not saying the story is ultimately about God and His sovereignty and His glory, of course. But there is a certain tactic at work here that we need to have our eyes alert for. So before we embark on several weeks together of contemplating the immeasurable greatness of this sovereign God whose mercy extends beyond human comprehension, let's ready ourselves for what God may want to accomplish through the ministry of His Spirit in each of our hearts. The book of Jonah makes crystal clear that saving the masses is never so all-consuming for our God that he loses interest in sanctifying a single stubborn prophet. In the same vein for us today, bringing the nations to saving faith through the good news of a crucified, risen, and reigning Christ is never too all-consuming for our sovereign Lord that he loses interest in transforming each and every one of us who are united to him by faith. So before we give ourselves to understanding the meaning and the application of this book for us together as best as we are able, let's humbly come now before the Lord once more in prayer. Father, we seek your aid. We recognize that there is more, more depth to your word than we will ever be able to see. And yet we are an ever-changing people. We forget we are, are dull and hard of hearing. We are in need of revisiting what for many of us is a very familiar territory of your word. I pray for fresh eyes, new eyes, that we would see and respond, and that we would consider this tale of Jonah and consider what it means for us today. We would learn from him, but most of all, we would see you more clearly in your glory. It's in Christ we pray these things. Amen. So as we begin our four weeks together through this incredible book, I think it's important for us now at the beginning to become acquainted with some of the terrain, some of what we are going to now move forward over in the next few weeks. Our intent is to cover roughly a chapter a week. Uh, and I, I say roughly because the book does not divide perfectly in four segments, but we'll do our best. So bear with me if your mind is geared towards symmetry and things just don't quite line up perfectly for you. But let's get ourselves acquainted with Jonah. Let's ask a few questions. What, first and foremost, what attitude, what attitude should we bring as God's people when reading this book? Well, for most of us, for most of us, this is a familiar story. If I were to ask for a show of hands of those that have never heard the story of Jonah before, 
This is just a guess, but I would assume it would just be a small minority. Many of us know this story and have known it since childhood. It feels like a well-worn pair of shoes. The story, though, is a sticky story. By that, I mean it, it, it sticks with our memories, doesn't it? It has a way of not leaving our imaginations. Once it's fixed there, the scenes and the characters, they're, they're just there with instant recall. I would even imagine a majority of the children in the room can easily recount the basic scenes, play by play, of all four chapters of the book. Well, as we know from many other spheres of life, though, just because something is familiar to us, it doesn't mean its depths have been fully explored, right? After a while, one spouse becomes familiar, but woe to the husband who concludes this means his wife is no longer interesting, right? Such is true for us as we revisit, most of us here, a familiar story with fresh eyes. So before us is God's most holy word. Let's never, regardless of where we land, turn a deaf ear to its unending power and applicability to our lives. Familiarity need not breed contempt for revisiting this particular story. Secondly, though, what features should we know about that are, are unique or important to this book? Well, the book of Jonah is God-breathed. It is fully the Word of God. So it is perfect and majestic, and for that reason alone, we should worship the God that it presents. But secondarily, from just a, a reading perspective, maybe a literary perspective, we might say. As one Hebrew scholar writes, he says, it is a literary tour de force. It really is fantastic in how the truth is presented purposefully. It is a brilliant use of satire that beautifully, even comedically in certain ways, portrays the utter stupidity of running from God and trying to privatize God's grace. A large degree of parallelism and word repetition and vivid imagery fills the book, causing some to regard the book as a prophetic parody, since it is so deliberately emphasizing the, the very nerve centers of Jewish life and religion hitting on all the spiritual pressure points present in Jonah's day. So the book has a satirical jab to it, as it is intended to arrest Israel's attention, to wake him up, maybe even cite a little jealousy. Third question is, what kind of, what kind of literature is, is Jonah? What are we looking at here? And I will say that at the outset here, it makes good sense to address the different ways that Jonah is interpreted. Some of you a little more familiar with this, it will just be that nagging question that we can sort of say, okay, we've talked about that, let's move forward. But some Bible scholars in recent centuries have regarded Jonah it's, as just, it's just too fantastical to be historical. I just can't, you see everything that's going on and you say this level of artistic beauty, and it has to be some sort of made-up story. 
Still to teach a moral lesson, but it, it can't be real, right? Something akin to the Good Samaritan or the Prodigal Son, something like that. One scholar who's skeptical of a historical Jonah says this, the story is crammed with an accumulation of hair-raising and eye-popping phenomena, one after another. The violent sea storm, the submarine-like fish in which Jonah survives as he composes a song, the mass conversion of Nineveh, the magic plant. One or two of these would raise suspicion, but all of them cannot lead to a mere historical reading. I would say, I humbly do not believe he is right. I do believe Jonah is not a mythical tale or a fable or even a parable that did not actually happen in real time and space. Now, why? Why would I believe that? First, it bears the marks of real history. It speaks with real names, with real cities, with real situations that actually happened and were present in 8th century B.C., the time in which Jonah ministered. Scripture makes clear reference in 2 Kings 14 to a real prophet named Jonah, who was from Gath-Hefer, who ministered during the prosperous reign of Jeroboam II, who was a great political and military leader, but one of Israel's most wicked kings. It's interesting for us to know as well that Jonah prophesied, the little we know about him, he prophesied in favor of Jeroboam II about the expansion of the northern kingdom. And in this time of peace and prosperity, Jonah prophesied that more of the good stuff was yet to come. Makes us squint a little bit and say, hmm, what sort of character was Jonah? We learn later the prophet Amos prophesies against Jeroboam's expansion efforts, which he says will bring God's judgment. There may be a point here, maybe not, but it raises some suspicion about Jonah's character. If he's delivering prophecies that conveniently align with the desires of one of the most wicked kings, or if he is true to the Lord. Second, though, why I think Jonah really lived, it does not bear the marks of a parable. It just doesn't. It's too long. It's too detailed. It's too specific. It's characters too vivid and refer to actual people and locations. None of these features conform to the genre of parable. And then thirdly, it appears Jesus himself understands Jonah to be a historical figure. In both Matthew and Luke's gospel, two passages that we will return to a few times because they are very significant for us. Jesus makes theological points regarding Jonah's near death and resurrection experience in the fish and the power of God to save the Ninevites. That seemed awkward if these were not actual events experienced by real people, really receiving God's real mercy for them. More on the significance of Jesus' words in these passages in the, the weeks before us. But in the end, Jonah appears to us as true history, but here's the thing, beautifully and artfully crafted in a unique, powerful way thoughtfully, with literary excellence that should cause us to see the point of that as well. So whether Jonah himself wrote the book or another individual, the book, though, is a book of contrasts. Watch for this. 
Consider Jonah side by side, as we will in just a few moments, with the pagan Gentile sailors. And then Jonah with the Ninevites. Spiritually speaking, who ought to fare better between these two? And yet, who does? What happens when God's prophetic mouthpiece refuses to herald God's message? As we'll see, the more Jonah's life unfolds, the greater this contrast grows between his heart and God's heart. But in the end, Jonah is not a false prophet. He is just a really selfish one. But this is no problem for a sovereign God whose eternal purposes will triumph according to plan. So, an outline for the book that will help us frame where we are going. The book can be divided in a few different ways, but for our purpose, given the the length of our time in the book, we'll consider the the two major divisions of the story. And you don't have to write all this down. Uh, It will come back to you. And... uh, But I want want you to see what really unfolds as two halves of the book. Chapters 1 and 2 parallel in many, many ways. Chapters 3 and 4, drawing out that growing contrast, the irony, the satire, the parody, the jab, arresting Israel's spiritual sensitivities that they would awaken to its message. But in, in these two halves, one through two, three through four, we see seven episodes represent, represented here. Seven being that odd number that just lingers out there at the end of the book to say, this is where we've been going all along. It's O. Henry's surprise ending that you didn't think was coming. And it, oh, does not satisfy. We want to just end the book at chapter three, feel good. Oh, that's the way you tell a story. And then there's chapter four, and it makes no sense. And that's the point. We'll get there. But it leads us to that soul-searching, surprising point of the book, whose heart will you reflect, Jonah's or God's? So with this aerial view, this big picture perspective in place, let's now begin by considering God's commission to Jonah and Jonah's response. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa found a ship going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Right out of the gates, the divine word is placed front and central. This is a royal commissioning from God to Jonah. And in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah in the same manner It is said to have come to Samuel, to Isaiah, Elijah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, many other prophets of Yahweh. As God did in the beginning, so He continues to speak when He intends to accomplish His will in the earth. The 
speech of God comes to this prophet. In return, he expects his servants to hear. And we expect his servants to hear and to obey. Jonah is mentioned by name here. His first name means dove. And son of Amittai means son of my faithfulness. We won't press this point too far, but it is a little interesting that in Hosea chapter 7, Israel as a whole is described as acting silly and senseless like a dove. And in a way, Jonah is going to live up to his name. For four chapters, he will remain a son of God's faithful love, even as he flits about as a silly and senseless dove, running from the presence of the Lord. So we consider verse 2. What, what is the divine objective God has for Jonah here? The text reads, up, up, Jonah, arise, get up and go, is the force of what is being said. We expect the text to say, yeah, and so Jonah got up and went. And it almost says that. But nothing could be further from reality. The mission location from God is Nineveh. And we are told right out of the gates, Jonah is saying a big nope, not going there. A royal city, a capital city of the Assyrian Empire, one of the great power centers of the ancient world. Its ruins located today on the edge of Mosul, Iraq. This ancient city was nearly 2,000 acres, decorated with all the modern advancements that you'd expect. Impressive walls and buildings, parks, aqueducts, hanging gardens, artwork, even libraries. But as great, as Jonah will point out here as the book tells us, as great of a city as Nineveh was, so also was the magnitude and the greatness of their evil against God. One author says, Nineveh stood for the essence of human self-exaltation and anti-God power. That's what they represented. It was a city known for its false worship and immorality. It was a city known for its high-handed law-breaking insolence against the God of heaven. The Lord doesn't miss a single thing, does He? If you capture a little more, get that. In all aspects, there is no, as we just sung of, in the song, The First Place, there is not a square inch of God's world that He is unaware of or turns a blind eye to. He knows it all, doesn't He? He even intimately is acquainted with the condition of the wicked, he sees all things. His heart is grieved by image bearers defiling his sacred image and their sacred purpose to bring glory to his name. And yet, this God still pursues these rebels with his powerful word. Through his spokesman, the prophet Jonah. What grace, right? What splendor to see the heart of God on display to the worst of people. So instead of obeying God's call to up, Jonah, arise, get up and go, Jonah does the opposite. He arose all right, but he split in the other direction, not to obey, but to flee, the text says. 
Instead of Nineveh, Tarshish was Jonah's final destination of choice. As we see here, you can see on a map, this may be helpful for you. Tarshish was a Phoenician trading port in, in Spain, this direction over here, at the opposite end of the Mediterranean, approximately some 2,500 miles from Nineveh. So in the ancient world, we would have seen this a little more clearly than for us today, but they would have thought, oh yeah, that's exactly the opposite direction. Right? As one author says, by heading for Tarshish, Jonah went in the exact opposite direction. It would be as if God told someone living in Chicago to go to New York, but they headed to Los Angeles. Right? Jonah thinks he can go off the grid and escape God's commission. But oh, how foolish. Jonah begins his senseless, downward spiraling journey away from the presence of the Lord. One of the most damning phrases that could, we could ever read in Scripture, away from the presence of the Lord. Watch for the downward spiral that Jonah's choices lead him. Presumably, Jonah leaves his mountainous hometown, which is what we know of Gath Heifer up in the, the mountains. He went down to Joppa, this coastal city right here. And once he arrives at Joppa, Jonah found a ship, paid his fare, and what did he do? Went down even further, went down into the boat. The author is helping us see Jonah's death march away from the presence of the Lord, even to visually and, and, and hear the repetition, he is going down. One Man writes, Jonah may not have realized. Jonah may not have realized what was happening, but with every step he took away from the Lord, he was one step closer to the realm of the dead. Eventually, he will go down to the bottom of the sea. And to run away from God is to run toward death itself. None of us are prophets here today in the way that Jonah was. We know this. I hope you know this. But the same reality is true for every one of us. When we run from God's Word, we are fleeing God's presence, which always ends up moving us closer and closer to death. Friends, while the Word of the Lord may not come to you like it came to this Old Testament prophet, it comes to you today through the written word laying before you, through the Scriptures. So when you hear that word, brothers and sisters, how do you respond? Let's start there first. How do you respond? In your relationships, in the workplace, in the home, in your neighborhood, in situations with non-believers, do you submit every corner of life to God's revealed Word for you? Or do you end up turning from that Word in order to lean upon your own plans, your own wisdom, your own agenda, thinking we can improve upon what God has clearly told us? Every choice, no matter how big, to yield to God's counsel is a choice to draw near 
to the presence of God. Every choice to reject God's counsel is a choice to invite the wages of sin and its downward deathly consequences. It is fully appropriate for us to be rightly warned by Jonah's death march and what that exemplifies. And yet, what mercy awaits, right? It's one of the benefits of knowing the end of the story ahead of time. How are we doing with being a people shaped, shaped by the Word? Where how we respond, how we think, how we filter and view all things goes through the submitted heart to the Word of God. Oh, that God would help us be a people who live all of life by the book, life by God's book. This surprising response by God's prophet leads us to an even more surprising turn of events with the pagan sailors in verses 4 through 16. Let's first look at verses 4 through 6 together. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So the next scene here begins with a bumpy boat ride. If Jonah conveys anything, it conveys the clear and obvious message that God is completely and sovereignly in control over every single element of his universe. The Lord hurls a great wind. The Lord hurls a great wind, and a mighty tempest is upon the sea. The sailors must, must have experienced storms routinely. This has got to be part of the job description, you would assume. But this storm brought them to the very end of themselves. They were so afraid, and after exhausting all normal options, hurling cargo into the sea, it was time for a prayer meeting, and any God will do. Meanwhile, where is Jonah? He is asleep. Here the story just drips with irony, doesn't He's asleep. The very character you wouldn't expect, these pagan sailors, they are the ones begging the prophet to pray to God. Those are supposed to be the opposite job descriptions, right? The sea captain, so sort of the chief representative of the bad guys, those that do not know Yahweh, they are the ones using God's own language, arise, call out. And as one person notes, he says, Jonah must have thought he was having a nightmare. Those were the very words which God had disturbed his pleasant little life a few days before, and they've come back to haunt him. The primary question before us, when will Jonah awake? 
When will he come to his senses, physically and spiritually? When will he wake from his spiritual stupor and turn to the Lord? The narrative continues for us in verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. And what is your occupation? Where did you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Yet another account of God's sovereignty here, causing the casting of lots to land squarely on Jonah, singling him out as the one who has brought this evil against them. The sailors want to know everything about Jonah as quick as they can, assuming a storm this catastrophic must signal that Jonah is some sort of exceptionally horrible person. So in verse 9, Jonah speaks up, but is it to pray? Uh, No, not at all. He identifies himself as a Hebrew who fears the God over all creation. Now, perhaps, now initially when, I, when we read this, we think, oh, yeah, and maybe this is the case. Maybe this is. Jonah is just going into creed and confession mode, where he's just, I pledge allegiance to the, you know, he's just going into automation. This is my people, and, and he's going to boast that, that his God is better than them all, and this is, could be. Or it could just be an ancient way of signaling with the way that religion and gods were just hardwired to national identity. He could just be saying, I'm a Hebrew, I serve the God, this is my God. Could be. I'm inclined to not view him favorably, but whatever that leads to. Perhaps this is nothing more than that ancient way of identifying. But Jonah is still asleep to the obvious hypocrisy of his words. Nevertheless, what he said does not match the way he's acting. And even the sailors see it. Buddy, this is embarrassing for you. The sailors' fears intensify as they listen to Jonah confess that he is indeed fleeing the Lord's presence. We really appreciate you picking this boat. You know, who knows what's running through their minds. They realize Now we're at the mercy of an omnipotent God, and we have heard the stories about what He has done. He parts seas. He does incredible things for those people, and now we've angered Him. Fantastic. The narrative continues in verse 11. Then they said to Him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, 
Let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. Do you see the word repetition here? And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The sea has been mentioned 10 times already. Even today, the open waters are unruly and fearsome, and we ought to treat them with healthy respect. But God holds these waters in His hands, directing each wave so as to convict a stubborn saint like Jonah and to convert lost souls like the mariners. On a small scale, what will be a much bigger scale when we reach the walls of Nineveh? What we are witnessing over the course of this scene appears to be the slow conversion of an entire crew of Gentile pagan sailors. By the end of the scene, they're using Israel's own language. Oh Lord, have, ha, have done as it pleased you. Or different way to translate it, for you, Lord, just as you desire to do, is a phrase borrowed from Psalm 15 and Psalm 135. So the listening and alert Jew would have heard that and said, that's, that's the very language I use in worship. And whose mouth is it in? My own prophet? <laughs> the pagan Gentile. What a conviction to the soul. The Gentiles are more God-fearing than Israel's own spokesperson. The sailors have pleaded with the Lord for mercy, and now they are sacrificing to the Lord and making vows before Him. And where is Jonah's heart in all of this? Well, it's hard to pin down precisely, but we still have yet to hear Jonah pray a single word to the Lord. It is going probably too far to impugn Jonah with enlisting the mariners in his assisted suicide. On the other side, it would be giving him way too much credit to all of a sudden, on a dime, do the most heroic, selfless thing that we can imagine. Take me instead. It seems he's just resigned to accepting the inevitable justice of God for his insolent rejection of God's word. But in the end, he receives God's punishment so others might live. And if Jonah's story stopped here, we'd assume the story was intended to teach us a single important lesson, warning us about God's justice against sin. But Jonah's story is far from over. Just as God's sovereignty has extended over every element of creation in this story, God's sovereignty will extend over every element of Jonah's rescue and return. He may be silly and senseless as a, as a dove, but he is still a son of God's faithfulness. So as we pause here, and it is hard to pause in the middle of a good story, it's that moment where you say, and if you want to know what happens next, kids, <laughs> you'll have to go to bed and we'll get to it tomorrow. That type of, oh, we have to stop. Yes, we must. But if we pause here and reflect, what are just two simple questions that draw out truths that we need to observe? Well, first, brothers and sisters, do you believe that God's mercy is for the worst of sinners? 
That is abundantly obvious from chapter 1. Do you believe God's mercy is for the worst of sinners? In every culture, in every age, at different times and different ways, the book of Jonah hits God's people in different ways. I think that it is how it should be. The story never changes, but we, oh, we change. We change a lot. Who our enemies are, where our prejudices lie, our religions, our religious and cultural aversions are most certainly a fluid thing. Who is it easy for you to despise? It's a hard question to actually ask yourself. We want to just give ourselves a clean slate. I despise no man, right? And we want that. Who is it easy for us to despise? I asked Samson earlier this week who the average person in India might feel a kind of inherent animosity, even a hatred towards. And within a split second, he said, Pakistan. (laughs) Now, I don't believe he believes that personally, but it was very interesting how quickly an answer was there. There was a certain feeling and animosity. We can imagine those that represent the hardest, the most difficult to love. For Jonah, Nineveh represented more than just a dangerous, hostile people. They were despised, considered undeserving of God's love. Israel had privatized the mercy of God like a precious commodity that they owned, that they presumed that they could distribute according to their own plans, their own godlike wisdom. And we too can often find ourselves happy with God when He tends to stay within the lines that we draw for Him. But oh, how misguided and unhappy our lives are when we try to live that way, right? One that is continually, a life that is continually mad at God for disobeying our sovereign orders to Him as if we know better. May God help us grow our vision for where His gospel must go, beginning with us, especially to the areas and the people who most appear to us and who we know to need it most. Secondly, do you believe running from God always brings or incites His judgment? If you are not a Christian and you're here this morning, Know that there is no sin that is too great or too late for God to forgive. I heard that phrase from Dan at a funeral a number of years ago, and it's never left my memory. There is no sin that is too great or too late for a sovereign, merciful God to forgive. So friend, what sense does it make to run from a God who is infinitely powerful, infinitely knowledgeable, incomprehensibly sovereign over every detail, big and small, that happens in the universe. If He is these things, we should take our cues from the sailors on the boat and recognize our only option is worship. 
Our only option is to bow low before His sovereign rule. Our only hope is not to hide from Him. That will do no good. It did not serve Adam and Eve in the garden, and it will not serve us today. We must not hide from Him. Rather, draw near to Him through His Word in worship. Our world tells us that our biggest problem is that we have too small of a view of our own greatness. And we need to expand our self-confidence and our self-love and our self-image. But just the opposite is true. The wages of sin is death, and eternal death awaits all who run from God, who run from the presence of God in pursuit of lesser temporal pleasures. And Satan, the great deceiver, has an old playbook with tried and true methods that work really, really effectively. So I'd encourage you to deeply consider what your conscience knows to be true this morning. God exists. God is powerful. The God who made all things, you included, desires to extend mercy to you through the grace of His Son, Jesus Christ, who has paid sin's penalty so you might be restored to that fellowship and communion with God. Run no longer away from Him. Run toward His saving mercy and repentant faith and trust. And for those Christians here, if we're honest, that are more like Jonah today, recalcitrant, hard, stubborn hearts, eager for God to do little more than rubber stamp the life we've already told Him we are going to live for ourselves, the one that's Instagram-worthy, shiny, polished, successful, stress-free, and shielded from all the sacrifices Jesus says are inherent to following Him. This is fantasy land. It's time, brothers and sisters, to wake up. To wake up, like Jonah. To wake up. See what life is about. It is about the glory and sovereign majesty of the God of heaven and earth who is using His people and His Word to save the nations as we read promised in Genesis 12 and 17 and throughout those promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that through them there would be a blessing to the nations. It's time to hear God's voice and respond. May God give ears to hear and eyes to see the greater glory of God's mercy in Christ. The missionary and author Elliot Clark shares the following story that illustrates loving our enemies with the saving mercy of Christ. He writes this story, Henry Gorecki was an evangelical minister living in Missouri in the early 1900s, and at the, at, at the onset at the outset of World War II, his two eldest sons entered the military. At 49 years old, Gorecki wanted to do his part, so he enlisted as an army chaplain, eventually working among allied troops in the European theater. However, his most notable service came after the war ended. When everyone else was eagerly returning home, including his own sons, Gorecki received a letter asking him to stay behind. With his knowledge of the German language, he was a prime candidate to work 
among the Nazi prisoners awaiting trial in Nuremberg. Gorecki was asked to serve as chaplain to those who were, at that point in history, the most hated men on earth. The wicked of all wicked. It would be like Jonah going to Nineveh. And Gorecki agreed to do it. Later, when the American press published his story, including Gorecki's willingness to graciously extend his hand to Nazi prisoners, he was excoriated. Back home, his service was seen as treacherous. But Gorecki continued. He quietly worked among the Germans for many weeks, reminding them of the gospel of Christ and offering them the hope of life. As a result, in the last days before their execution, some of the world's most hated men seem to have come to genuine faith. So how little we comprehend of the love of God. But may God deepen every one of us with a greater apprehension of that love and our willingness to extend that love no matter what, into the hardest of places and what may appear to us as the hardest of hearts. Let's pray. Our God, we come to you recognizing this is not a safe book. It will have an effect on us. Indeed, every inch of Scripture has that purpose. We know you've given us your word to accomplish something, to get something done in the earth And so we pray that your word would get its work done in us, that we would take honest stock of our hearts. We would recognize the proclivity to hate is going to be there forever for humanity until you return. And we need to take inventory of our own hearts. Where must the gospel go? What are the ways in which we are doubting your sovereign purposes And even in doubting it, with lack of faith, we are voting, in a sense, to move away from the presence of the Lord. May this reality stun us a bit, have that jab that the book is written to accomplish, to prick our consciences, and even the hours to come as groups meet all across this region and discuss this book and apply it. We pray that your Holy Spirit would give us grace as we take steps to live it out and to love your sovereign purposes. Most of all, we see the way that this incredible book prefigures and whets our appetite and prepares our expectations for the final work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We anticipate that realization and we know that he has never left, he will not leave us or forsake us. We thank you for the ministry of the Spirit, and we ask that your word would accomplish its work in us. In Christ we pray, amen.